The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. This morning's sermon text is Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we begin our series in the book of Philippians, and we'll, Lord willing, take about the next 18 weeks or so, pausing for Advent and a few other things. And one of the aims that I have in doing this study in the book of Philippians is to reorient us in this season and time to the centrality of Jesus Christ and to the gospel of Jesus. And so, would you join me as we pray and ask God for his help? Father in heaven, would there be glory to God the Father, glory to God the Son, and glory to God the Spirit, three in one. We're asking that you would get glory for yourself as your truth is expounded upon and revealed so that we would see more of your glory for our good so that we might be conformed to your image. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's no secret that Philippians is probably, for many of us, one of our favorite books. My guess is many of us have memorized portions of it. Perhaps you've memorized the entire book. It's often called the Epistle of Joy, and its popularity and quotability is disproportionate to its length. Only four chapters and 104 verses. There are so many kind of pithy sound bites from the book of Philippians that many of us know. For example, chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I was telling my daughter earlier before the service, the first time I stumbled upon that verse was when I was, you know, had a pen pal, some girl, and, you know, she kind of slipped it in there. And I was like, Philippians 1, 3, what's that? And kind of looked it up and said, oh, you know, that's kind of low-grade Christian flirting, right? Is <laughs> throw in Philippians 1, 3, when you want to conveniently tell someone you like them. Uh, but, but, but we know so many of these verses from Philippians, don't we? 121, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or, or Ryan in his prayer just earlier, therefore God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know these verses. Or when Paul says, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Or... Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Or 
our, our favorite passage on combating anxiety and fear. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I imagine in a congregation like this, that verse has been recited, I want to say thousands, millions of times. Millions of times. Or our, our favorite, I think, verse, not us, but people, verse to take out of context, Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So there, it's no wonder that the book of Philippians is a favorite for so many. The letter is full of timeless truths, memorable words, but I think a danger arises with such familiarity. And I think it's this, that we can read, we can know, we can even quote passages from Philippians, but we divorce them from their original context, their intended meaning, and their biblical significance. So let me just give us one example of this. The the one I talked about earlier, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is what popular health and wealth preacher Joel Osteen writes about this. He says, Most people tend to magnify their limitations. They focus on their shortcomings. But scripture makes it plain. All things are possible to those who believe. That's right. It's possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It's possible to overcome that obstacle. It's possible to climb to new heights. It's possible to embrace your destiny. You may not know how it all take place. You may not have a plan. But all you have to know is that if God said you can... You can. I think the Apostle Paul, maybe not quite have an aneurysm or throw up, but he would just sort of, you know, start shaking at seeing that kind of commentary on on that verse when he originally penned that from prison. So I think there's a danger for us of romanticizing and sentimentalizing and even trivializing Paul's letter to the Philippians. There's no judgment if you have the nice print of a verse from Philippians from Hobby Lobby in your living room or in your dining room. And yet, we don't want to miss the meaning, the significance, and the context of Philippians. Philippians is not just a collection of pithy quotes, but it's a letter with an aim and intention. And my goal this morning is for us to look at that aim and that intention from the introduction. So this morning, as we begin this study... We're going to look at the first two verses, looking at some of the background, some of the central themes, and I think these two verses, first two verses give us these three things. It gives us the writers, the readers, and the greeting, and so we'll use that outline to kind of walk through. It gives us the writers, the readers, and the greeting. So the letter begins, look with me at verse one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So let me just give us a few contextual notes about the book of Philippians. Philippians is the apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony in the province of Macedonia, about eight miles from the Aegean coast. And Paul planted this church in Philippi during his second missionary journey, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 16. And this letter is essentially a thank you note for the Philippians, that church's financial partnership and support in Paul's ministry. They'd sent him a financial gift, and he's writing this letter as a thank you note. And Paul writes from prison, most likely from Rome. 
Now, this opening line identifies Paul and Timothy as the authors. But what we'll notice is that it's written in the first person. So it's likely that it's from Paul, but Timothy is his secretary who's responsible for writing the letter for Paul. And for many of us, we know that Paul is the well-trained Pharisee, the persecutor of the church, who encountered the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he's been forever changed. And so in his missionary journeys, he's planted churches. And here he's writing to both thank them, but also to address some of the issues taking place in the Philippian church. Whereas Timothy was half Jewish, his mom was Jewish, and his father was Greek. And he was a disciple that first came to faith from his mother and his grandmother. And Paul writes of Timothy in, uh, la- in later in chapter 2. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So Timothy is an apprentice, a, a co-worker of Paul, a trusted associate. And he's probably the secretary for many of Paul's epistles, like 2 Corinthians and Colossians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Philemon. Now, notice how Paul identifies themselves at the beginning here. He says, servants of Christ Jesus. And if you're not familiar with all of Paul's other letters, you would see this as unsurprising. And yet it is surprising. This is the only time that Paul uses this word servants or slave without the word apostle. In two other books, he says servant and apostle. And in many of the books, he begins by saying, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. But why does he say that he's a slave or a bond servant or a servant here? To see Paul's normal pattern, we can just look at Galatians 1.1. Galatians 1.1 begins like this. Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Do you see the difference there? In the book of Galatians, Paul is addressing those who doubt his authority, those who doubt his apostleship, those who are kind of stirring up and rabble-rousers. And so right from the outset, he's trying to say, I'm an apostle, but not from man. No one made me that way. God made me that way. But Paul doesn't do that in Philippians. Paul Philippians is one of the letters with such warmth and joy and affection. So why does he begin this way? I think there's several reasons, two main reasons. The Philippian church didn't question his authority or teaching. He didn't need to establish that he was an apostle. They knew. He he lived among them. He planted that church. Paul was beloved and his apostleship was readily recognized. There was no need to introduce Paul to the Philippian church because he was the very founder of it. The second reason, I think, is that it reveals Paul's submission to Jesus, which is a theme that we'll see throughout the letter. So in a Roman colony like Philippi, there were slaves. And slaves would have lacked freedom, would have few or almost no personal rights or privileges. But in Paul's mind... He's saying it's a privilege and it's an honor to be a slave of Jesus. He's not complaining about being in prison or his situation or his accommodations. Rather, he's saying in the providence of God, he's placed me here and I'm content being a servant, a slave of Jesus. He's humbly submitting to wherever God has placed him. And in fact, Paul draws this out 
further and later in the letter where he says Jesus himself displayed this humility. And I'm just following in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus was the one who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is the same word here, slave. Jesus took the form of a servant, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so I think what Paul does in this opening introduction is he sets the stage that not only is he a servant, a slave of Jesus, not only are we following in the footsteps of Jesus himself, but all of Christ's disciples are to be called, are to think of themselves, are to have the mindset of being servants or slaves of Jesus. This is why Paul later says, Some preach Christ out of rivalry, seeking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way Christ is proclaimed. It doesn't matter about me and how I feel because I see myself fully as a servant and as a slave of Jesus. He can do whatever he wants with me. So Paul calls himself a slave because he really does see Jesus as his master. And so the question for many of us this morning, do we see ourselves as slaves of Jesus? Is that what comes to mind? Is is that how we view ourselves? Do we believe that Jesus is our master, our Lord? We can throw around those words, but do we live that way? Do we take all the commands of God seriously? Or do we pick and choose according to our whims and what we feel like? I think this is one significant danger for Christians today. Many Christians want Jesus to to fit our mold. We want Jesus to be our friend. We want Jesus to be our brother. We want Jesus to be our savior. We want Jesus to be our cheerleader. We want Jesus to be our dream fulfiller our destiny reacher, enabler. And yet we don't want Jesus to be our master and our Lord. And yet Jesus isn't our friend, our brother, our savior, apart from being our master and Lord. And this is what Paul gets at even in these introductory words. We we, we love the truth. We can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, right? Right? And yet, what are we drawing near to? A throne. A throne. He is the king. Jesus is not some benevolent old man who's stumbling around passing out candy and blessings. He is Lord and Savior, ruler of nations. And so do we believe this morning, brothers and sisters, as we look towards fall, as we have all of our activities going on is one of the primary ways we think of ourselves, not just as those who can do what we want, make our own plans for the year, but do we see ourselves fundamentally, perhaps even primarily, as servants and as slaves of Jesus? Do we believe that it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in tents of wickedness? Are we living in such a way that communicates that Jesus must increase and we must decrease? Are we living with the mindset of servants and slaves of Jesus? 
I think Paul is beginning to tip his hand even in these few words as he opens his letter to show that joy and life and freedom is found in submitting to Jesus above all else. So now we turn to the readers of the letter. In the second half of verse 1, Paul writes, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. I think three questions come out of this section. What does saints in Christ Jesus refer to? Is this some special group or is he talking to everybody? Second question is who made up the early church in Philippi? And number three, why does Paul, why does Paul call out the overseers and deacons? So first, who are the saints? Well, Paul is writing to the entire congregation at Philippi, which he calls the saints, or the literal translation would be holy ones. So this means all believers in Jesus in that city. So he's talking to the entire church, all those who are set apart at their conversion. So he wants them to think of themselves not only as servants, but as saints, as holy ones, those who have been set apart by God in the same way that Israel was set apart in the Old Testament. As God's holy people, royal nation, now the church is to think of themselves as those who are primarily characterized by Christ, set apart for Christ. Now he says, in Christ Jesus and at Philippi. I think this is Paul's shorthand way to refer to one of his central themes that are throughout the letter, which is the centrality of Jesus. This phrase, in Christ, carries all of this kind of theological weight behind it. And I don't think in every instance he's necessarily referring to union with Christ, but he's definitely talking about a life that is centered and revolving around their allegiance to Jesus. This is their primary identity. In fact, later on in the letter, he says, make sure that you remember that your citizenship as Philippians living in a Roman colony where you would have had Roman citizenship, which would have made you really special. You can buy and sell property. You're exempt from land taxes. You were entitled to protection by Roman law. Make sure you remember that your citizenship is primarily in heaven and not at, in Rome primarily. So I think he, he, he's showing here that you're in Christ before you are at Philippi. Yet you're in Christ before you're citizens of Rome. Now, the second question is, who is the church at Philippi? Well, Philippi was this old and historic city that was established by Emperor Octavian as this military outpost and Roman colony. And as we mentioned earlier, everyone that lived in Philippi, if you weren't a slave, would have been given Roman citizenship. That gave you special privileges. And the first converts in Philippi that comprised the church were Lydia and the Philippian jailer and their family. So in Acts 16, it tells us this, and you remember studying that several months ago. The first was Lydia, this prominent and wealthy businesswoman, a dealer of purple goods. And it says about her, Acts 16, 14, she opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then she was baptized along with her household. And then she opened her home and showed hospitality to Paul and all of his co-workers. So first convert and her household. The second key conversion was the Philippian jailer. 
So remember, Paul and Silas are walking through the city. There's a slave girl that's following them that keeps screaming out, and she's possessed by a demonic spirit. And so they cast out this demonic spirit. The owners are furious. They throw them in jail. They're beaten. And in God's providence, their imprisonment is for the salvation of this Philippian jailer. And remember, the, the earthquake shakes open all of the gates, all of the doors, and, and the jailer looks and he's like, oh, I'm in big trouble. He pulls out his sword to kill himself. And Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. And, and so he comes out into the light and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul gives him the perhaps one of the most succinct and articulate encapsulations of what it means to be saved. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so this Philippian jailer and his entire household, they are baptized. They invite Paul in. They minister to their wounds, bind them up, show hospitality, and they believe. So the church at Philippi included these two key conversions and households that comprised this church. And so this church is probably primarily a Gentile church because Lydia was a God-fearer, so she's Gentile. And then the jailer is a Roman soldier. And then the other names mentioned throughout Philippians are Epaphroditus and Euodia and Syntyche, and these would have been Roman names as well. Now, the third question in this section is, why does Paul mention the overseers and deacons? Many find this a little bit puzzling. Why do we mention overseers and deacons when they aren't mentioned anywhere else later throughout the letter? I think there are at least two reasons. Paul is writing this letter as a thank you note to the Philippians, and chances are the Philippians, the church, administered, facilitated, organized this gift through their deacons and through their overseers or leaders, elders, pastors. The, the word overseers here is bishop, which refers to the elders and pastors. And I think they're all used synonymously. And they're likely the ones that administered and organized this gift and sent it along by Epaphroditus and included a letter. And so Paul wants to specifically call them out and thank them. The second reason, I think, is it's related to the disunity that's present in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Just scroll down and look there. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And so it's likely that the overseers, the elders of the church, would be responsible for ensuring that these two women resolved their conflict, which is why I think he calls out the overseers and deacons here. And it's just helpful to note that he refers to a plurality of leaders that lead in the church, and yet he also writes the letter to the entire church. So he affirms both there being a hierarchy, there's leaders that are given by God, established to lead in the church, and yet there is the priesthood of all believers. This letter is not just for the leaders, but is for the entire church. So we've seen the writers, we've seen the readers, and now we come to Paul's greeting. And he says, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we read these words, we, we see them a lot in Paul's letters. We can almost think that they're throwaway phrases. Some of us might put that in our kind of email signature, you know, grace and peace. It's a little bit like how sometimes we'll walk down the hall and say, hey, how are you doing? And we don't 
really mean how, you know, they're doing. We don't want a 20-minute exposition of what their week was like. We just want to mainly hear good or I'm okay, and then we can kind of follow up. And sometimes people, you know, try to get around that and say, no, how are you actually doing, right? And we're like, oh, that's an invitation to actually share. And so sometimes we think, you know, grace and peace is this kind of throwaway phrase. But I think the use of grace, there are no throwaway phrases with Paul, is more like the tip of an iceberg, So you just see the little tip, but there's all of this theological weight and significance that's beneath the surface for Paul. And so when he says grace to you, he means I I want the unmerited, undeserved favor of God that is obtained for you through the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus, reconciling us to God so that we have entrance into his presence, that we can draw near to his throne of grace with confidence. I want that grace to be upon you. But that just takes too long to write. So he just says, grace to you. And I think it's the same way with peace. He he expounds actually on this peace later in chapter 4, verse 7. We, We quoted it earlier. This peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this peace is not earthly peace. It's it's divine peace. Jesus says, peace I give to you, not as the world gives. So this supernatural peace that's from God because we've been reconciled to God the Father, God of the universe, that we're no longer enemies and estranged, but that we are beloved children. Peace be with you. And he draws out the deity of Jesus by rooting both this grace and this peace in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This greeting is not a cliche, but a condensed, power-packed, concentrated expression of Paul's theology. It's like an espresso shot of Paul's theology of saying, I want God's grace to be upon you. I want you to experience all that it entails. God's peace to be upon you. And I think for one of the things that we need to do, especially for those who have been in church for a while, we can hear grace We can pray for God's grace. We can use those phrases, grace be with you. I'll pray for your experience of God's grace. And yet we, we divorce it from all of the theological significance and meaning. And we need to reattach it. We need to meditate upon these realities once again so that our awes, our hearts are stirred with awe once again. When someone says, grace to you, God's favor, rooted and grounded in what Christ has done on the cross. The Lamb of God died for sinners, rising again, ascended to heaven, seated on his throne. The name that is above every other name. May that grace be poured out upon you, brothers and sisters. That's what Paul wants as he begins this letter. These are not throwaway phrases. These are not cliches. He wants the iceberg of truth behind grace and peace to land on us with all of the force that he can muster up. So this morning, have we experienced the grace 
and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not have we known and studied those words, but this morning, do you experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding and is guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. As you look at all the uncertainty of our world, and and I don't have to list out any of it, and and of the fall and and things that feel unstable and uncertain, uh, what are we looking to? Have you experienced this peace? If not, that's what Paul That's what the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what I want for you this morning. To experience the overwhelming grace of God the Father and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that there are some here this morning who are not following Jesus. You don't know what it means to have peace with God. You mainly think of him as a divine judge who's twiddling his thumbs and saying, Maybe I'll strike them with lightning or bring punishments. And yet, we want you to know him as a loving, gracious father who gently receives his children, lovingly receives his children. And so if you don't know what it means to have peace with God, we invite you to come and find out more. What it means to trust Christ, to repent of your sins, to look away from your ways of living and to submit yourself and to become even a servant, a slave, someone who's fully submitted to Jesus. So, as you look at these opening two verses, you know, when I first told my daughter that we were doing just the first two verses, she says, there's not a lot to preach on in those two verses. I beg to differ. But did you notice what was repeated? Look at the first two verses again. What's repeated most? In just two verses, Christ Jesus. To the saints in Christ Jesus. Grace to you from and peace and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is repeated three different times in just the span of two simple verses. Just the introduction. And I would suggest here that the, the central motif throughout this letter, melodic line, if you will, is drawing our attention and our affections to see and behold the centrality of Jesus and how it spills over into every single aspect of life. It's often been called the epistle of joy. and Many of us know Philippians for its joyful language, filled with joy. Paul is so warm, so affectionate in this letter. He's constantly rejoicing and calling the Philippians to rejoice, and it shows up Either those words, those range of words about 16 different times, but here's a homework assignment for you this week. Read Philippians in one single sitting and and grab your paper Bible or your Bible software and mark up every single time it refers to Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, or what Jesus has accomplished. Every single time, just mark it, underline it, highlight it. And see how many times. I guarantee it's more than 16. 
And this should be no surprise to us because Paul is the one who writes later, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a life. This is a letter that is overflowing from someone who sees Jesus as more precious than anything else. He is his treasure. And so I think that the central truth Paul wants to get across in this letter is that it's all about Jesus. And we'll see different aspects of it. The gospel of Christ that's preached, the grace that comes from Jesus' saving work, the peace that we can obtain by being saved by Jesus, the fellowship we enjoy through Jesus' unifying work. But Philippians comes back around again and again to the centrality of Christ. This letter does so many things for us, doesn't it? Paul explains his situation. He thanks them for their gift. He exhorts the church to unity. He warns against legalists. He he thanks them. He he expresses his hopes and desires for them. He prays for them. There's just so many things kind of power-packed and condensed into this letter. But I think that the greatest contribution of Philippians is that it reveals a life that is so centered so revolving around the lordship of Christ. And it gives us a picture to hold our own lives up to and saying, do I talk with that type of thanksgiving? Do I exude that type of joy? Do I even have a glimmer of the contentment that Paul has here? Writing from prison, he says, I can do all things. I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have nothing. And I'm very content because I have Jesus. And so we hold up Philippians and we can marvel at the author of Philippians. But would we marvel at the God of Philippians so that we would be people who would then write and speak and think things like what we find in Philippians. I think that's the the aim of this letter. It's not just to communicate to the Philippians, but it's so that we might say, look at Paul, and then I want to be more like Christ. Our lives ought to be all around Jesus. This letter revels in the centrality of Christ partnership around the gospel of Christ, the joy that overflows from being in Christ, the suffering that we can endure even right now because we have Christ and gives us a call to live worthy of the gospel because of Jesus. So Paul wants to remind his readers right from the outset that everything is all about Jesus. It's his apologetic to the Philippians, that living in obedience to Jesus is better than anything else. And so is that true for us this morning? We have the testimony of someone who's in prison saying, I count it all as loss. Being imprisoned with Jesus better than being outside without. And for many of us this morning, with the trials and sufferings, stressors, hardships, Is it better to have life in Christ? The grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus with all of that theological weight landing on us like an iceberg. Is that better 
than all that this world offers. It is. It is. So let's live and think that way. To have Jesus is to have everything. So as we move towards fall and, you know, a number of things are on our mind. Success, accomplishment, getting the school year started, getting all my ducks lined up, crossing my T's and dotting my I's or whatever else, or just staying afloat is our primary aim and ambition to make much of Christ, to delight in Christ, to be transformed by Christ, and to be servants and slaves even of Jesus. Is our heartbeat this morning, and only we can do that introspective work, is our heartbeat this morning, like Paul's heartbeat in this letter, that his ambition and passion and song is to declare that Christ is his everlasting treasure. And I would just challenge us, us this morning, once again, let's make that our ambition, Bethlehem. Let's make that our aim, to magnify Jesus in all things, in transition, with the beginning of a new year, with whatever is going on in your life, even if the circumstances look dire, may our ambition be to magnify Jesus above all else and that he would be central in our lives so that we would overflow with joy and thanksgiving, having tasted and seen of the goodness of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we love the picture of you that we get in this book. And so we want our hearts to love you more. We want our affections to be stirred by you. We want to be servants and slaves of Jesus, not enslaved by drugs and alcohol and accomplishments and gambling and pornography, but we want to throw all of those off and be enslaved by the explosive power of a new affection in Jesus. So do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.